Welcome, 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 and thank you for tuning in to the Zion Temple podcast under the leadership of Pastor Vince Holmes. Here at Zion Temple Community Church, we are powerfully driven to dream bigger, pray bigger, and work hard to experience the many blessings God has for our church and the community we serve. We pray these messages increase your faith to live the abundant life. stumbles at one point, he is guilty of all. 
For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do commit adultery, but, I'm sorry, if you don't commit adultery, but do commit murder, even in the middle of that, God is working, even in the middle of their trials, that God is working on their behalf. And so he says, hey, have this mindset, have this understanding that you're going to go through some very hard times. And even in the middle of some hard times, in fact, anybody got some hard times going on right now? Like life's just not what you want it to be, not as you dreamed it to be. There may be some challenges. Well, James today wants to remind you that God is there in the presence of that hard time and that God is still working on your behalf. And so he says what you can do is you can um, deal with it. You can endure those things knowing that God is working on your behalf. And if you don't know what to do, he says, ask God for wisdom how to do it. And he, God will give you the wisdom to how to do it because it's his desire to do just that. And so and he says, and he reminds them of doing that. And he talks about um, true religion being uh, a religion that, that people do what they, say, what they say they're going to do. It's more than just, just believing, but it's acting upon what you, what you believe. And that that action... Um, is carried out each day. That relationship with God transforms and changes character. And that in that character and transformation, it is involved in um, being compassionate, of showing, um, he says that we are to care for the homeless, uh, the, the motherless, and the, I'm sorry, the widows and the fatherless. And so we are to display character and caring compassion to those who are in need. So he, um, and not only that, and he ends that, so I'm going to go right here, right now. So we're going to begin, if you look at the last verse of chapter 1, verse 27, as he concludes this, and it runs right into chapter 2. In chapter 127, he says, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And so as he talks about it, I thought about, well, why is James in chapter 2 talking about this whole thing of classism and, and, um, and preferential treatment? And can we relate to that today? Well, if I back up, like I said to verse 27, the end of that verse says, and to keep oneself unstained from by the world. You see, there is uh, there, there, there ideology and practices that happen in the world, but that should not be a part of the character of the authentic Christian. Right. Mm. So James says that, that true religion is compassionate. True religion, it, it, it meets the needs of those who, who have needs, but you, as an authentic Christian, as a real Christian, that you are not to allow the world, in fact, Paul said it like this, be not what conformed to the world, but be what transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so James is piggybacking on that same idea is that the world has standards, it has ideologies, it has practices that are inconsistent with the practice and ideology and lifestyle of the believer. 
And so you are to avoid, we are to avoid the infiltration or the, um, or, or, or the practice of those same things. And so James, the practice that he's going to deal with is actually, was actually common. It was common in the synagogue, this idea of partiality. It was common among the Roman, Romans, um, and it was accepted as the norm of their culture and the society in which they live. And so today may make you a little uncomfortable as we deal with some of these issues, but I promise you that if you, if you, if you come along with us, if you make the commitment to hear from the Lord, that you will leave better than you came. Anybody willing to say, Lord, speak to me? Lord, speak to me. In fact, go ahead and put that in the chat if you're listening. If this is we broadcast on Facebook and YouTube, just pray, Lord, speak to me. In fact, put the words in, speak to me. And so I, I wonder, we wonder why did James decide to deal with this issue of all issues after saying, hey, keep yourselves unspotted from the ideology of the world. And then he goes on in chapter 2 and deals with this issue of, of um, classism or, or racism. And I looked at it because at the time, you know, the Roman population, the Romans were, were ruling, actually. The Jews were there, but the Romans were conquering and ruling. And at this time, 90% of the population of the Roman Empire lived, as we would say today, below the poverty level. 90% of the population was living below the poverty level. They were living below the bare minimum that a person would need to survive from day to day. And so that the wealthy elite that formed the upper 10% of society had a disproportionate amount of money, resources, influence, and political power in the cities of the ancient world. Excuse me, does that sound familiar? In other words, 10% held most of the wealth of the society. That's about where it is right now, 10%. And so the result of living in that was that those, those who held the wealth, those who held um, control, they also had preferential treatment in the courts. They passed laws that protected their land, their wealth, and allowed them to continuously gain. Mm, sound familiar? They would get the best seats in the public events because of their influence, their wealth. Wait a minute, Pastor, are you talking about over 2,000 years ago? Or right now. You see the similarities there. So, but because favoritism was so deeply ingrained and, and normalized, it could also prove to be very costly to go against the system that, that preferred or favored the wealthy. 
Why? Because the wealthy employed the poor, or the, the poor lived on the land that the wealthy owned. The poor who were, who were um, into um, agriculture grew their crops or whatever on the land that was owned by the landlord. And if they, I almost said something that probably isn't church-like, um, but if they angered the, the landlord, hello, then the landlord can confiscate the land or put them off. And so now these people, these people who were there, have become Christians, or they, become, they begin to trust Christ, and so they have the same ideology of the practice of giving preferential treatment. And so in verse 2, chapter 1, verse, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 1, Peter writes, so my brother, don't hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. He says that that might be the pervasive attitude outside the church where they're giving preferential treatment because of their wealth or because of their class or because they were Jewish. And then we have the Gentile sect here, which turns into be racism. And he says that don't, don't do that um, in a, because it was with personal favoritism. What does he mean personal favoritism? Well, check this out. If we, we give attention to, to the wealthy, was not only common, but it was self-serving. What, what do I mean? It was not only self-serving, but it was a, a form of self-preservation and sometimes. Because if I, if I treat the person with, with wealth well, then that person responds to me favorably. You see what you see where I'm going? If, if I, but not only that, but it also allowed the person with wealth to have this attitude of elitism that I deserve this because I'm either born into wealth or because of my social status or maybe they acquired wealth. Sound familiar in today's society? And so there was this, this pervasive attitude of elitism, and then those who were responding, even in the church, hello, were welcoming those, or giving preferential treatment to those who had the power, or those who had the money. Mm. Uh, let me just be real. Every board, every, every um, church board, that is worth its, its weight, or every pastor, I'll say maybe not the whole board, but churches function on giving. Churches function on giving. Without giving, we don't function. Without giving, there are no lights. Without giving, there's no ministry. There are some who are more equipped to give financially more than others. Every board, every, every um, pastor, per se, that I know that's worth his weight, can identify who are their largest contributors. Now, the response of the board, the response of the pastor can, while he recognizes or they recognize who their largest contributors are, are, their response should not be of a preferential treatment, hello, to the larger contributors. You don't get the parking space because you can contribute X number of dollars. 
Now, the expectation isn't the same of both of them because there's a matter of ability, but you can't give the, the preferential treatment to the other. You can't tell, tell your board, don't, don't piss, I mean, oh, wow. Don't, don't make, I did try, I did try, that's the same way I was going. I said it now. Don't, don't piss off your biggest contributors because they might leave the church and if they leave the church and they take their money with them. My brother passed on. Think, t t tell me the truth. You, you thought about it. My experience has been when you're walking with God and the Lord provides, the Lord's called ministry, that you stand in righteousness, you stand in truth, and let God take care of the rest. If one leaves, God will bring, God will bring another one. If another one doesn't show up, God will just send money from wherever. He takes care of it. And so this is what was happening. And so Paul knows rather than seeking. And so, so what would happen is that it became self-serving. It became self um, uh, idea of self-preserving uh, to honor and to give favor to those who could be a blessing to you. And then those people had an elitist attitude who have the money. But Paul says that, you know, that's not who we are to be. That um, he, he even knows that. That, and I did say Paul, not, not James. James is saying that, hey, this is not the treatment of the church. But Paul even concurs with how we are to treat one another. In fact, if you turn over to Philippians chapter 2. And I, I'm going to get there. Because say, he ain't talking about racism yet. Hold on, we, we, we're going to get there. And first, and I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Um, through 11. This is what Paul's ideology. He says, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, and if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete, watch this, by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Here we go. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Watch this. Do nothing from what? Selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look on your own personal interest, but also on the interest of others. And have this mind in you. I'm sorry. But have, have this attitude in yourself, in my head I know a different translation, but have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. What does he say? Watch this, watch this, watch this, watch this. Remember I said that, that Giving preferential treatment or, or, uh, is also an idea of, of being self-serving. It's not just looking out for someone else, but it's actually looking out for yourself. Huh. Watch this, watch this. And so when we give this preferential treatment, the, the real goal isn't because we think that they're worthy of it, but the bottom line is that we're doing it for our own benefit. And so Paul says that is not the way this thing works. He says if, if, there's, any, if there's any relationship with Christ, if there's any love among you, then you are to serve 
serve others and to put others first and to look on their benefit, even as Christ did, who was all, who's God, who's rich, who has it all, but counted himself, what not trying to become God, who had everything, but yet came as a servant. Stay with me, stay with me, I'm going somewhere. And so James, as he writes this, um, um, he, he tells us that, so we're to have that same attitude. So Jesus' attitude was just the opposite of being self-serving, serving. And there's no room for favoritism or racism in the church. Let me say that again. There's no room for favoritism, classism, racism, not in the church. It is unbiblical. It is ungodly. It is uncharacteristic of Christ. And even though it was pervasive and it was the law of the land, the practice of the land at that time, it was still ungodly. So James is directly challenging that. And so today I've come to directly challenge to directly challenge the ideology um, of even in the church, because the church has a history of being racist. Uh-oh. You didn't say that. I did say that. And we still feel the effects of it, and it is still practiced in some circles today. Do you not know that 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings is the, has been noted and has statistically been proven to be the, the, the most segregated time in America? Because most churches are, are what? They aren't multi-ethnic, but we, 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 we come together with our own people, with people who are just like us. I mean, let's just say this. We, we, right here at Zion Temple... We are in the middle. Now, our community was African-American. Our history, we've been here for over 80 years, and that was the history of the community, that it was, it was uh, predominantly um, black, right? And so we grew up with that, and the community has changed, and the congregation today that's in the house, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on a second. Now, it is predominantly black. All black but one. And somebody said, we got Christian. I know y'all y'all seen a brother playing. People said, who's the Latino brother? You know, he's part of brown boys. <laughs> Eliza, right? And, and, and so we, we, we say that, but it's telling. We have not made ourselves uncomfortable enough to relate to the community in which we are in. Ouch. And if you're like me, and so I, wow, Lord, I didn't want to say this. And it is so natural to not to become, I have a friend who calls me a militant, pastor friend of mine, and I said, I'm not militant, I just love my people. And I, and I do. But, oh Lord, I, I don't mean to do this. Uh, but there are times when I am preferential to my people. Okay. 
So I get it, I understand it, but that doesn't make it right. I mean, it's so that even when I watch a game show, <laughs> see, see, these people know what I'm talking about because they do the same thing. If there are two opposing competitors and one of them is more like me, I am cheering automatically for the one who's more like me. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says it. Don't hold the faith, your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Didn't mean to go, go all there. But he's challenging us. You say, does this exist in the church? Well, it even existed in the early church. Before the church was the church, there was racism, there was favoritism, there was classism in the land. And that same ideology, because it was part of the sinful nature of men, when they came to know Christ, that had to be worked out and weeded out because we all bring this baggage with us. That's part of the transformation. In Galatians 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 11, someone said, you might, you're taking this to the extreme. This, this isn't part of the church. Oh, yeah, it is. In Galatians 2, beginning in verse 11, this was Paul writing about Peter. He says, when, when Cephas, or, or Peter, came to Antioch, how did Paul respond? He says, I opposed him to his face. He stood condemning he was wrong. Paul says, I, I opposed Peter to his face. I did not back down. I challenged him to his face because he was wrong. Watch this. He says, for prior to coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. When he was with Gentiles, he ate with them. What does that mean? He ate stuff that was not quote unquote sanctioned under the law. He ate pork chops. <laughs> right? He ate, it wasn't things of the law. He says, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, they the, the Jewish brothers came, he began to withdraw and withhold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. He says, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas or to Peter in the presence of them all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Jews to, I'm sorry, the Gentiles to live like the Jews? So here we go. 
Paul confronts Peter and says, hey, dude, what's going on with you? How dare you? How can you? When they are here, you're living like the rest of the Gentiles. You associate, you, you acclimate, you live their lifestyle. And now that your boys are in the house, you want to be all conservative and act like, 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 like you don't have anything to do with them. Like that's not what to do and that what they do is wrong. And so he says, that is not right. That is not of God. That is not the gospel. And so Paul goes on and says, hey, you might think because you're a Jew, you might think that because you're favored per se. Says, but the reality is that you got to admit that you are a sinner. You messed up, you jacked up, and that in order to have access to God, you have to come through the person of Jesus Christ. Just like the Gentiles have to come through the person of Jesus Christ. And so because we all have to come through the person of Jesus Christ, then you have no right to tell these guys that they have to adapt to your cultural preferences in order to have relationship with God. Who do you think you are that your cultural preferences are? I would say. Let me, let me, let me say this. Let me say this. I have dear friends, I went to school, I have lifelong people that I love who are, who are, are not of color and our relationship is good. But every now and then, one of them will say, I don't see you as black. Or, even when I was in school, you're different. I'm different than the idea that you have in your head that has been propagated by society of what black people are. I, I, I get that, maybe, but I'm the same. Here's the thing. I want you to see me as black. God wants you to see me as black. Just as God wants me to see you as white. Just as God wants me to see the Latino brother as Latino, as the Asian brother as, as Asian. What, what, what am I saying? It is not, it's the idea is that I acknowledge that God has made us different, but in our differences, we are all equally valuable to the kingdom and person of God. And so that, God, so that you don't get to, 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 to put your culture and insist that I adapt to your culture. Don't see me as one who has to adapt to your culture and then demand that I adapt that way in order to have a relationship with God. The challenges of a multicultural church Studies have shown is that isn't that people well once people get over the idea of accepting people of different nationalities, is that those who are in charge tend to insist that worship is done according to their cultural preferences. I'm here to tell you that's not what God's called us to do. That's not what God called us to be. And so God tells the person of James, hey, you don't give for He says, you see to the, to the rich person who comes in who's dressed all good, who looks nice, and he says, here's, a, here's, here's your preferred seat for you. We've adapted our worship for you. Or our worship is reflective of you. And you see the person who, probably dirty, maybe doesn't smell good, you sit back there. Where's God? This was the practice that was happening. He said, man, that's crazy. That's far-fetched. I'm 
telling you that this ideology of superiority and elitism can still be seen in the American church today. And, and in fact, let me, let me ask you this. You say that's a far-fetched idea. Okay. How, in the light of scripture, was it ever justified or could ever be justified, because this is what happens, <clears throat> or happened, that if you allow my people to come and worship, then I had to sit somewhere else. I couldn't sit in the preferred seating up front. This is in the church, not the theater, the church. the separation of seating in the church based on color or wealth. Slaves set up top. In the 60s, we had separate, not equal things. If we were allowed in the church, we sat in a different section. In the church. That's how the, the African-American Methodist, the Episcopal Church was born. It was born out of discrimination of telling black folk that they could not sit in a certain seat to worship the same God. How do you justify that? You don't. You don't. You don't. Somebody ought to type in, you don't. <laughs> You don't. You don't. How, how can you come in now and we, we mix it all up together and we say that we can worship together, but the leadership and the worship is dominated by one culture? You don't. You don't justify it. You can't. Somebody has to be big enough and bold enough to allow the word of God to challenge their own ideologies, their own experiences, their own cultures, and declare, just as Paul declared, that I am committed to and be committed to living this life as the way that God wants me to live it, and declare as Paul declared in Galatians 2.20, that says, I, me, my preferences, my culture, my, my tendencies or my proclivity to prefer my own people, my own race, that I submit those because I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but yet not I, but, but, but I, the life that I live in the flesh, I now live according to the power and, and the, uh, the faith that I have in the Son of God who loved me. In other words, that I allow my ideology, my framework, the way I think to be challenged and changed and transformed to line up with the word of God. Racism is of the devil. It's evil. It's diabolical. And has no place in the life of the authentic Christian. And you ask me, do I challenge whether your relationship with Christ, if, you, if you're racist? Yes, I do. I think the word challenges and demands that you ask yourself, am I reflective of the God that I serve? Why? Because if God's created us equal. In fact, let's go back to James. In James 2, 
Stay with me, y'all. Stay with me. We're we going we to end this well. In verse 8 11, through 11, he says, If you are, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. Let me stop right here. You got to understand. He's talking to a predominant, to a, to a Jewish culture, right? And nothing is more important than how they view Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and how they view the law. And the law had told them that, they, that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus had kind of redefined and expanded their ideology of what a neighbor is through the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan. He said, somebody who's not like you is your neighbor. The folk that you hate is your neighbor. And so James comes and says, hey, if, you're going to if you fulfill, and they say, I keep the law, I love everybody. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well, okay. But if you show partiality, if you show um, preferential treatment, he says, you're committing a sin. And you are convicted by the very law as being a transgressor, someone who breaks it. And James reminds him, he says, so if you keep the, it's he who keeps the whole law and stumbles at one point, he's become guilty of it all. You've broken it. Doesn't work. You're guilty. He says, for the same God who says do not commit adultery also said don't commit murder. And so now, if you, if you commit adultery, if you, I'm sorry, if you don't commit adultery but you do commit murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So if you say, I follow the law, I believe in God, and the word of God tells me to love my neighbor as myself, come on church people, right? Holy, sanctified, talking in tongues, white ones and black ones, all alike. And you said, I, I, I love God, I love God, I love God. Well, it's the same God that you say that you love has said that you do not get the right to choose and pick what parts of my word that you will obey. You do not have the right, you cannot be racist in your ideology and your practice and say that you love me. Watch, for the word of God says that if you, you can't say that you love God and hate your brother. John says that you are lying. And he says, you're a bold-faced lie, and the truth is not in you. What does he say? He said that God is not dwelling in the attitude and the atmosphere in which folk are hated because of the color of their skin or their financial uh, um, status or their class. You can't love God and hate at the same time. He's saying God is in you, but God is love. Let me, let me put this in, in more terms that you might be able to. Some of my other friends might be able to understand. Some of my friends love the Declaration of Independence. Love it, love the Constitution, the Constitution of the United States. And the Declaration of Independence, they, they want to hold it up and we have a Supreme Court um, justice that's coming up now, a nominee, and so we want to know, you know does she interpret the, the Constitution or, or does she believe in, 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 in law changing changing law as society changes? Um, or do they withhold the intent and the original meaning of the, of the Constitution? But they, the same people, they love the Declaration of Independence. And the Declaration of Independence say, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Oh, y'all know it, you're in your school, huh? That all men, what does all mean? Let me, let me, let me say something. Everybody, everybody, all means all. Maybe not them, but it does, really. 
says that, that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's it. That's the Constitution. That's part of the, 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 the um, Declaration of Independence signed in, in July 4th, 1776. And we believe it, we believe it, we believe it. And yet, at that time, there, there later on came um, 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 Article 1, Section 2 of the Constitution of the United States declared that any person who was not free would be counted as three-fifths of a free individual. Wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. I thought that the document that you believed in said that all men were created equal. Was it, was it, um, what's her name? Texas Senator Barbara? George, was it, is it Barbara Jordan Shirley Chisholm once said when they met, when they wrote all, they did not mean me. You don't get, the, you don't get the, the privilege of declaring that all men are declared equal, but your actions declare them as only three-fifths of a person, and only that three-fifths is only used to give you what? Self-serving, um, um, to self-serve you, to, to help determine congressional representation. Even that was a farce. You don't get to go both ways. You don't get to say that God created man in his image, hello, and then treat some men like they weren't created in the image of God. Uh-oh. It's quiet up here. Quiet out there. Somebody say amen. So James says, hey, you, got, if, if you cannot allow, I don't care if it is popular, you got to remember that it was popular during that time. They believed it. It was within their circle. But just because it's popular, just because it's legal, doesn't make it moral. Racism has no place. Classism has no place in the authentic Christian life. Now, the authentic Christian is riddled with challenges, riddled with growth opportunities, riddled with, with, with becoming who God has, has called him to be. In fact, he lives in a suspense between what, what he is and who God says he is, that, that he's becoming what he already is and that God already sees that. And so I can understand if you have that, but you've got to be challenged. You've got to be big enough and bold enough to say, God, my desire, my thought, my my. my intent of my heart is to think like you think and to see and to view the world like you view the world. And here's where we have to guard ourselves. You know, there's a big controversy of whether we can be racist because racism um, hold, depends on who holds the power, right? We, we don't have, quote unquote, any power. Most of ours is reactionary or response. But when you come to know Jesus Christ, our response to the way we're treated has to reflect the glory of God. I don't get to hate somebody because they treated me poorly or because they've done my grandparents poorly. Worse than poorly. And that's what I guard against. That's what I have to guard against. Is that I don't feel, or, or I know. I don't deal with the anger, the rage of my people being mistreated. So I don't get to conclude that all white folk 
our devils. Say that. You don't, you don't get to conclude that. Because God has white saints just like he has black saints. White folk don't get to walk around treating us as if we are less than, if God's created and destined us for a life of servitude. Because he created us all in his, his image. And so again, racism, classism has no place. And I'm so thankful that James decided to deal with that. And it applies even today. And I recognize that, you know, the Constitution of the United States as well as the Declaration of Independence, they're great documents. And they're, they're, they, they were, were genius in their, in their setup. Great in representing and calling democracy. And they're good for governance. But they don't rule the church. They don't rule relationship with God. Our lives are based not on a party, not on a constitution, not on a political affiliation, a citizenship, or our color, or our creed. But for the saint of God, biblically speaking, determine, I mean, our culture does not determine the practice, the lifestyle of a believer. The word of God does. So our question is, Lord, am I living up to what you've called me to live up to? This goes so, so, so much deeper and requires um, much more conversation and thought. But the authentic Christian's lifestyle and ideology, as I said, is to be determined by the word of God, not culture. Or the practice, the popular practice of the community or the popular practice of the congregation in which you worship. It's determined squarely by the, the word of God. And as we conclude, Jack James says, hey, look, don't be fooled. In verse 12, chapter two, verse 12, James says this, he says, so speak and act, right? As those who are being judged by the law of liberty. In other words, your lifestyle is to reflect the character and ideology of God. Your mouth should speak it, and your actions should line up with your mouth. It says, how serious is he about it? Verse 13 says, um, for judgment will be merciless, merciless to those who show no mercy. And mercy out trumps judgment. In other words, God's going to hold us in account accountability for how we treat folk. So you don't get to be deep and spiritual and marry that into your political attitude and your political happenings and, and um, your political actions contradict the word of God. We're committed to God first and then whatever political party you want to affiliate with. But our ideology and our actions and our relationship with others and other races is determined by the word of God and the character of God. Racism is evil. In fact, 
he, he, he goes on and says, he says that, that it's evil. It's evil. Racism. Racism is diabolical. And here's the thing of the church. We want to classify racism and acknowledge that racism is evil, that racism is diabolical, but we only want to deal with it on an individual level. Individuals create systems. What are you saying? Say that left unchecked, the ideology of the individual begins to show itself in systems. That's why this thing was happening in the church. The system had become, because individuals have this elitism, the system now allowed them to have preferential seating, preferential um, treatment of the law. And so while we deal with and call it out as individuals, we also must recognize that it, it becomes systemic. And we are challenged. I, I challenge you to be like Paul, call it what it is, as he approached Peter, that we deal with it. We don't get to hide. Pray, yes. We'll look at next week. What happens when I pray, but I don't want to back it up with any action? Can't pray that God ends racism and you don't want to be a vessel. Can't pray that God takes racism out of church but you don't want to say anything. I'm sorry, such a solemn <laughs> ending. But y'all, this is authentic Christian living. This is real stuff. This is where we live. And this is where God is called us to be. So I want to I pray today, but I, I want to give an invitation, and this message really is to, to Christians, because if you don't know Christ, you are in relationship with God, you don't have anything to govern <clears throat> yourself by, or the power that's needed to change the way you think. But I want to challenge anyone who will, who will say, Lord, I want to be caught um, living for you. I, 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 I am willing, Lord, to submit my personal ideology, my personal convictions, and my tendencies to be preferential to my own. I want to submit them to you and to your word. White, black, yellow, brown, whatever that is, I'm willing to submit them to you. There's a whole lot inside of me that I constantly, a lot because of my, up, my upbringing, of my, my dad being, being a Black Panther, the stories that my great-grandmother could, they, now I want to call them stories as if they weren't true, the experience that her, that she orally passed down to us of treatment of she and her family of living in the South, the experience of going to the South and um, having to, to drink out of, of a dirty water fountain. My wife had the same experience. Um, I don't know if it was a water fountain, but seeing a medical facility that she tried to go through a door that on the other side was nice and air conditioned. 
with her grandfather. And she had to come back with him on the other side. Those things build up in us. But are we willing to submit our experiences to the power of God and allow him to transform our thinking? And if our thinking changes, our actions should follow. And if you're willing to take that challenge today, I, I, I just ask that you'll, you'll simply type in the words, I will. If you're sitting here today and says, I, I submit myself to God to be changed and to have my thinking and my lifestyle controlled by him, simply raise your hand and we're, we're, we're going to pray. Amen. 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 Lord, you see every hand that's raised. You know every I will that will pop up on the screen. And so, God, we submit ourselves to you. We are your people. We were created in, to be in your image. And while all were created in your image, God, we are in relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ. And so we submit ourselves to be transformed, our minds to be conformed, to respond as you would respond. Even when done wrong, God, that we'll take a stand against unrighteousness, but that we would not engage in the unrighteous thinking of racism. God, we as a church invite you to make us different, to make us um, people, make this congregation reflective of a community in which it ends in. We submit ourselves to you. If it means learning another language, help us, Lord. So God, we bless you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, and may the people of God say, Amen, 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 amen. A serious topic, but the word of God doesn't shy away from it, so neither will we. And in action to that, I want to invite you on April 9th, April 9th at um, 9 a.m., April 9th at 9 a.m., we're going to have an event, and we're calling it Walk the Talk. Walk the Talk. We believe that God has given us or called us to be involved in the area within this, in our community. And we're going outside the church door where we walk the talk, where we meet the neighbors, where we greet the neighbors, where we let them know that God is real and alive and caring of their, cares about their issues and their needs. Well, we're offered to pray for them and find out what they need. Invite them to come worship with us. And it may result in some great changes, and if it does, that's fine. I pray that it does, but we're going. I want to invite you to go with us, even those here in the congregation, to join me as we, as we go, pray, meet folk in the neighborhood. And if you're interested in going, simply send an email to walk at ztccla.com. That's walk at ztccla.com. We'll send you some more information. We're going to grab our, our Dream Bigger t-shirts and hoodies if you want. You'll have the opportunity to purchase them and, and go out with us. But you can go if you don't wear one. If you believe that God has called you to make a difference, you don't have to do it alone. Come join us.
we're going to go with you. You can go with us and watch God work. How many of you believe that God, God works? Amen. How many of you believe that God loves the people around here? Just as much as he loves you. And if he'll do it for you, oh, folks, if he'll do it for me, he'll do it for you. So we're going to go and let the world know that God loves them, cares for them, and is ready to work on their behalf as they enter into relationship with him. That's walk at ztccla.com. Amen? It has been a challenge um, with technology, but I believe that God will cause this word to go to the people that he's intended for it to go to. Amen? We invite you to, to give. You can text the word POWER to 73256 and you'll get a drop down and be able to give into ministry. God bless you and thank you for coming to worship with us. Thank you for coming to worship with us. I will see you tomorrow at 1 p.m. at break, um, break time with Pastor V. I almost said break down with Pastor V. I don't have a break down. <laughs> Amen. Break time with Pastor V tomorrow, 1 p.m. Pacific time. Thanks again for, for being here. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. God bless you.